0: Welcome to the NECF podcast, where we share our weekly sermons and faithfully interpret the Bible to encourage and direct you on your spiritual path, where our devoted pastors and special guests delve into the depths of the Bible, exploring its profound lessons and useful applications for your daily life. Admitting confession in the sense of confession in English dictionary, which means to admit that I'm wrong. You have caught me. I'm wrong. Hmm? Does not in any way mean that the issue of sin has been dealt with. So that sinners must die. There must be death as a result of sin. Join us as we explore the timeless truth that have the power to change people's hearts and minds, promoting a closer relationship with God and a firm belief in His promises. Father, we thank you, Lord, because we enjoy sound doctrine. We endure sound doctrine. And we manifest sound doctrine. Father, we give you all the glory and all the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, having prayed for God to to help us to understand his word, there's a responsibility of God. And there's a, responsib- a responsibility towards us when it comes to his word. James chapter 1 verse 21 in the Amplified. Let's look at our own responsibility. If this prayer, which has been answered already, will bring fruit in our lives, this is how we should respond. James chapter 1 from the Amplified. James chapter 1 from verse 21. Classic. It says, so get rid of all uncleanness and rampant outgrowth of wickedness and in a humble noun. This is how we receive the word. Hallelujah. In a humble, a gentle, modest spirit, not in pride, not in grudges, not in whatever form of mort, but in humility, gentle, modest spirit, receive, you know, there's one thing to receive somebody into your house. Someone can knock onto your door and you see, say, come in. And you're not really being welcoming to that person. You know, some of us can come to your house, you can't chase us out of your house, but you be uncomfortable welcoming us in your house. But there's a way you receive someone, the person feel welcome in your, in your house, right? So related this to the word. It says, receive and welcome the word. So you have to do what? To receive the word and do what? And welcome the word. Because if you don't receive the word, all this prayer we have prayed that God has already answered will not bring fruit in your own life. So you have a duty to receive. And how do you receive? You write. Amen. In church here, as we are teaching, as we are preaching you are writing. Even in your quiet time, as you are studying the word, you are writing. Hallelujah. I have not done with the scripture. Please help me. You receive, right, with meekness, with humility, the engrafted word, the implanted word, and rooted, which is implanted and rooted in your hearts. So the word comes directly to your hearts. Contains the power to save your souls. Hallelujah. The word has a possibility to save the souls. 22. But be what? When we've received the word, we've written it, we've contemplated upon, we've, and we've, and we've welcomed the word. The word has created, it has become part of us. We've created room for the word. We become doers of the word. But be doers of the word, That is, you obey the message that you are taught. Because it is in obedience that we see the fruitfulness of the word. And not merely listeners to read. Betraying who? So when you listen, you welcome the word and you don't obey the word. It's self-betrayal. You are doing yourself harm. Not to the pastors, not to God, not to anybody. But it's a self-harm you're doing yourself. And not merely listeners to it, betraying yourselves into a deception by a reasoning contrary to the truth. You know, there are some people here in church, when they teach, all that they are seeing is the contrary opinion to what has been taught. And it's not actually, you know, there's a way, you know, your contrary opinion is an explanation of scriptures that you have, or probably is you trying to compare scripture to with scripture to come to come the uh, to come to the knowledge of the truth. But to some, it's just, I don't agree with this one. I don't agree with this one. What this one is saying, I don't agree with it. There's no how you will be benefiting from the word if, you know, you you, you don't accept the word. You don't welcome the word. You know. And it will be as though you are betraying yourselves into deception by reasoning contrary to the truth that you have been taught. Verse 23. For if anyone only listens to the word without obeying it and being a doer of it, he is like a man who looks carefully at his own natural face in the mirror. For he thoughtfully observes himself. Hmm? You go to the mirror, you look at yourself in the mirror, and then you goes off and forget that. That is madness. You need This explanation, right? is is explaining the condition of a madman you go to the mirror you look at yourself and you see the spots you see your real image is supposed to look like in the mirror and then you see some things that is not supposed to be on you and then you walk away without making adjustment aligning to the true image that it ought to be for he thoughtfully observes himself and then goes off and promptly forgets what he was like this, this is unusual but he who looks carefully look at the way we receive it we receive the word we but he who looks not not rash not not rashly not without care carefully are we receiving signal from another country But he who looks carefully into the faultless law, the law of liberty, and is faithful to it and, and perseveres—now, sometimes the word may not be, may not sound comfortable in the beginning, right? It's faithful to, the, to it and perseveres in it, looking into it and being not a heedless listener. Who forgets, but an active doer who obeys. Amen? It's, an act, it's what we call active listening. You are listening and you are writing and you are doing. You, are, you, 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 you listen and then you, you practice it. You do it. He shall be blessed in what? In his doings, his life of obedience. So the blessedness of the word is dependent on what? On obedience. Hallelujah. It's dependent on what? On obedience. So we have an obligation to do what, to not only listen to the word, to be sound knowledge-wise, but we don't do the word, then there will be no fruitfulness in our lives. So my encouragement is as we are praying that God should help us to understand God's word, as we are praying that God should open our eyes to truth, as we are praying that God should open our minds to revelation of his word, let there be eagerness in our own hearts as well to receive it to welcome it to observe carefully to practice to put it into practice thereby enjoying the fruitfulness that is enshrined in this revelation that we receive hallelujah there is no point asking god to give us boldness as your pastors because boldness god is increasing our boldness hallelujah god is increasing our revelation is increasing our boldness. And will continue to be bold. And will speak boldly. But if you will not put it to practice, then all this is of no use. So my encouragement is that you make it a duty to put it into use. Hallelujah. So last week, we began on the issue of the confession of sins, right? On the matter of confession of sins. And there are some some very key uh open statement, open ended statement we made. And the first one we made is that no scripture. Now, it's a continuation from what we began from several weeks and even from last week as well. So, if you are new in the church, please be patient. And then I believe that even today you'll be blessed richly. So, one of the hypotheses we established is the fact that no scripture in the epistles now when we talk about epistles it's not a big word epistles simply means letters the bible is divided into the what we call the new testament books you know there's what we call the epistles in it right and of course the four first four gospels mark luke john matthew mark luke john right and which one There are four, right? I was thinking there are five. Then we have the epistles, right? The letters written by Paul and the apostles and those who were eyewitnesses of the things that Christ did. The apostles. And we say that there's no scripture in the Bible, in the epistles, that instructs believers to confess their sins to God in order to receive forgiveness. This was the first thing we said last time. That if you go through the epistles, you will not see any Bible passage that enshrined upon believers to confess their sins so that God will now forgive them their sins. Several weeks ago, I think maybe last year or so, we said that for something to become a doctrinal or for something to become a practice in the church, first of all, we must see its roots from the Old Testament. Was it, you know, in the Old Testament scriptures? Was it part of the law? Is it something that uh, the apostles wrote or taught about in the scriptures as they wrote? Is it something that they've, they've taught the early church? And even when we come to the book of Acts, can we see the elements of the practice of that thing in the early church? If we can't see this then, it's not necessary for us. Hallelujah. That's how we know how to, to evaluate which practice is applicable to us. Nevertheless, no scripture in the epistles instructs believers to confess their sins to God. To God, not to men, to God in order to receive forgiveness. And then secondly, we say confession under the New Testament is hinged on Christ Jesus. Whenever we see confess, the next thing we'll see is Jesus Christ and all that he has done. That is very important. You know, it's hinge on Christ Jesus, acknowledging all that he has done and is doing in and through us believers. And we also say that Jesus Christ was made sin for us, which is why from the epistles, we are not to confess our sins like a literal confession of wrongdoing, but rather confess what Jesus did for sins or to sins for humanity. He died for sins, thereby fulfilling the demands of, his, of, of sins. And then I said last time that our goal in this teaching concerning confession of sin is to prove to see whether these assumptions are true, whether these things we've said are true. You know, the goal of every teaching is to give evidences from scriptures, right? It's a short rust with overwhelming evidences about the truth of God's word. So we're going to continue from there today. From where we stopped today. And then we said something last time as, as well that, that there's a scripture that seems in epistle that seems to say the contrary when it comes to the issue of the forgiveness of sins. Confession. And just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if I said that there is no any Bible scripture in the epistles that command Christians to confess their sins for forgiveness, what can I say about this passage? And I said it is, you know, our duty now to unravel what this passage is saying, what this verse is saying. And we say that if, if we are to take this passage, this verse 9, 1 John 1 verse 9, in its literal sense the way it is written then it will contradict what other scriptures are saying concerning the idea of God forgiving us our sins so what have God said in his word what have the apostles written what have been taught in scriptures concerning the forgiveness of sins and the first passage we saw was Matthew chapter 26 verse 27 Matthew 26 verse 27 and 28 they went out to the Mount of Olives. Verse 28. Give me verse 20, 28. For this is my blood for a new covenant which is shed for many for the remissions of sins. So we said here from this passage that the remission of sins, which means the forgiveness of sins, is hinged on the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. And is not by what? By confession of sins is by the blood of jesus christ so it's not because he confessed that you are forgiven but it's because of the blood of jesus that you are forgiven so if you should read that bible passage first john chapter one verse nine in a literal sense it will contradict what this bible passage is saying there are other bible passages for example now acts chapter 13 verse 37 as well we read it last time acts chapter 13 verse 37 39 and many other scriptures. Give me that one. Acts 13, 37. Yes, to 39. But he whom God raised up, so no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, through Jesus. Now, he said, this is one of the apostles preaching here. He says, through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. So, the forgiveness of sins is a message to be preached. Not sins to be confessed. And by him, everyone who believes—so you see—is by believing in him. Then what happened to the, to the to the person? He's justified. He's made. He's forgiven. He's justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So we see here as well that it will be contrary to what that First John chapter one verse nine is saying. And there are many scriptures. So all these Bible verses and many more shows that forgiveness of sins is received as a gift. It is a gift through what Christ has done and not by the confession of sins. And not by the confessions of sins. So we said that in order for us to have a grasp of John's emphasis of the word confession of sin as used in 1 John 1 verse 9, it is imper- imperative to read the whole chapter and also the whole book of John because. The, the book of 1 John is a letter. If I write you a letter, you not just pick a line and say, ah, this is what this person is saying by just reading a verse. First of all, I say that the Bible was not written in chapters and verses, right? It was not even written with punctuations. It was plain in the original language that it was written. So chapters and verses and punctuations were added by translators. Why? To help us communicate, to help us understand. So, is the chaptering and verses of the Bible and the punctuations inspired? It's not divine inspiration. Are we together? So, can we alter punctuations? Of course we can, since they are not divine inspirations. Are we together? In fact, if you check some bible translations, you discover that some punctuations are not same in bible translations. Because they are not inspiration, they are not inspired by the holy spirit, this is why translators in their attempt to help us to do what to come to a place of understanding scriptures. So with this background information, now let's dive, let's delve into 1 John and explain what the writer is saying. So let's look at John's teachings on confession of sin. First John chapter 1 verse 1. Let's begin from verse 1. Let's begin from the very first verse. Now it says that which was from the beginning. Which we have heard. Which we have seen with our eyes. Which we have looked upon. Our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life. No, let's just stop at verse 1. Verse 1 first. So observe from this verse 1 that John didn't begin by addressing anybody much more in particular like other writings. Like in in his other writings. John did not address anyone in particular much like what he did in 2 John. Give me 2 John. Let's look at the beginning of 2 John verse 1. We see the way he writes, right? 2 John was also written by the same writer. Let's go to 2 John verse 1. The elder... To the elect lady and her children, you see, he's writing to who? To the elder, to to, to the elect lady, right, and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also those who have known the truth. Okay, let's move to third John chapter one, verse one, rather. We see he was specifically addressing an individual here in third John verse one, the elder, which is himself, to the beloved guys, whom I love in truth. Now go back to first John 1 John 1.1 and let's see who is he addressing? Did he, did he follow the same pattern? Because this is very important for us to understand verse 9. That which was from the beginning. So, so which means that he didn't begin by addressing a specific individual. Are we together? He didn't begin by addressing what a specific individual. So John therefore spoke about the message. And what is this message? This message, this word of life, right? Spoke about, you know, the word of life as we see in this 1st John chapter 1 verse 1. So we should not further that, that every time John talked about believers in 1st John, he was always specific. Amen? Whenever, if you read through the entire book of 1st John, that when John is talking about believers, even in all his writings, not only 1st John, when he's talking about believers, he's always specific. Let's look at some examples. First John chapter 2 verse 1. We'll look at how specific he is in 1 John chapter 2 verse 1. First John chapter 2 verse 1. Yes. My little children, hmm? these things I write to you that you may not sin. And even if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So, when he's speaking, is, is it specific here? Yes? Help me please so we can do this together. Is it specific here? And he's specifically talking about who? My little children, right? Which means that you know that this is talking about a believer. Isn't it? Jump to verse 12 of that same chapter 2. Verse 12. Verse 12. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Is this specific here about the believer? All right. Now let's move to verse 13. We'll see how he writes. I write to you, fathers... Because you have known him. Is this specific here? I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. Is this specific here? I write to you, little children, because you have known the father. So every single time Paul, uh, John is speaking or referring to believers, there's no ambiguity in his communication concerning the believer. He's specific. You know that he's talking now to the believer. Now let's look at First John chapter 2. Yes, yes. Yes. Of course, we've read, right? In 1 John chapter 2, verse 12, he wrote to fathers, 1 John chapter 2, verse 13. He's referring to young men. So let's move to chapter 1, verse 2. 1 John chapter 1, verse 2. You see that Paul spoke about eternal life. He said the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declared to you that eternal life, which was with the Father was manifested to us. So in this verse 2, John was is speaking here concerning eternal life. And later he taught it in, in, in chapter 5, verse 11 to 13, as having the Son, even Christ Jesus, and thus will be by faith. you understand what I said? This eternal life he spoke, he's speaking here, we'll see that later on, in the same book, the same letter, it's not another letter, the same First John. Give me chapter 5, verse 11 to 13. You see, where he was referring, he was referring to this eternal life to be in a person, and this is a testimony that God has given to us: eternal life. And this life is where is in where is in His Son. Verse twelve: He who has the Son has what has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things, yes. These things I have written to you who, what, who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. This is the reason for the book of 1 John. The reason for the f- book of 1 John is not so that people will be confessing their sins. I we together. Specifically to believers that they may know that they already have eternal life. First John chapter 1, verse 3. Let's go back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. We are going down until we reach verse 9. It's very important that you maintain consistency. That's how we we'll come to a proper interpretation of what that verse is saying. That which we have seen and had, we declare to you. So John here is saying that, that which we've seen, right? We've had. What makes him an apostle is because he has had a contact with Jesus Christ. First hand. So that which we have seen and heard, we now declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So who is John addressing here? The believer. Are we together? He begins to speak about fellowship and speaks about our fellowship being with the Father. And with his son, Jesus Christ. Let's move to verse 4. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Who is he referring to here? The believer. Are we together? John was specific here. And Thor stated that I write unto you that your joy may be full. Now the question there will be to ask, who are this you that he speaks to? And we've come to agree that this you is speaking to his who. Is the believer. Hello? Up until now, we now understand that Paul was writing to the believer. Isn't it? Good. Good. Hold this knowledge very well. He was speaking concerning those who have eternal life. Who have fellowship with the Father, the Son, and other believers. Isn't it? Now, this following. This is following what John taught in 1 John 2, verse 12 to 14. Give me chapter two, verse twelve to fourteen. We are collaborating the entire book of First John together. We are reading it together. First John chapter two, verse twelve. We'll see that it's in line with the same thing. Chapter two, verse twelve. Yes, it says to 14. It says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are what? Are already forgiven you for his name's sake. Is it because of confession? No. For his name's sake, I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the father. Verse 14. I've, I write, I've, I've written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. knowledge is key here. And this knowledge is by fellowship. I have written this to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the wicked one. So here we see that the believer have already overcome. They have known the Father. He who is from the beginning. He goes further to refer to them as brethren. Right? He go on to talk about them as brethren. First, chapter 2, verse 7. Calling those. yes, is addressing as brethren. I've written to you, Fathers, 2, verse 7. 2, verse 7. Brethren. What does brethren mean? That we are of the same family, right? That we are of the same source, that so we fellowship together. That's why we are brethren. So he was speaking to brethren here. Are we together? Now, verse 5. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. 1 verse 5. We've read verse 4. Now we are in 1 John 1, verse 5. This is the message which we heard from him and declare to you. So who is the we? Huh? we here is Apostle John and other apostles, right? Other believers. And he's declaring to them, right? Who are the believers? Who are the people he's addressing? Hope you understand this. This is a message with which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, I don't want to go to Genesis to explain all these things. Let's hold on that. So John speaks of the message which he, he claimed to have declared unto his audience. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Now let's move to verse 6. Now verse 6 is where the conversation changed. If we say, look at verse 6 now. If we say, if the Bible is yours as we always say on the line we here. Right? Cycle that we. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Let me read it again. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Is there darkness in God? Is God in us? So the question you should ask is, who is the we? is talking about here. You understand? All right. So it was from this verse that it appears that John was addressed, the people he was addressed, as though it changed, right? Observe the pronoun begins, he begins to use we. Verse 6, if we say, give me verse 7. If we walk, give me verse 8. If we walk, if we say, verse 9, if we confess our sins. Go back to verse 6. So it seems as though the people is addressing change here, right? So who is John referring to as the we here? Who is he referring to? Now let's read verse 6 down to verse 9. Since we've established earlier on that he was addressing believers who have the Father, who their sins have been forgiven, who God lives in and in God, there's no darkness at all. Which means that this person has nothing to do with sin. Isn't it? Now, let's read from verse 6 down to verse 9. To see the way there's a shift in communication here. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleans us from all sins. It. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So how can someone that we've, we've seen earlier on, that he was referring to as someone that has been forgiven, how can he now be saying that we have sin? And that means that something is wrong with his communication. Maybe he's confused. Maybe he was taking one when he was writing. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Verse 9. If we, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. Now, a lack of diligent study will look as though he is referring to himself and other believers. Are we together? If you read this without carefully observing, you'll be thinking, ah, oh, no, this man now is not taking, he's talking about us. He said we, which means that he is included in the conversation of the we that have not that have, that have seen in them. Now, the we here is a language of communication. If you are writing, put this down. The we here is a language of communication. is a way of communication. I will show you in scriptures, clearly, how it is also used in other passages. Let's look at what the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter one verse two. We are trying to look at the way this "we" was used. Hebrews chapter one, verse two. So, give me read me from verse one. Hebrews one one. Then we we'll go to verse two. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, verse two, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom all. He met the walls. Now move to chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. Chapter 2 of Hebrews, verse 1 to 3. Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Verse 2. For if the word spoken through angels prove steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience receive a just reward. Verse 3. How shall we escape Hello? How shall we what? Now, is a writer of Hebrew a believer? Does he need has he escaped condemnation? So, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now, is the writer of Hebrews part of the we here? How shall we? Neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to, the, to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. So, the writer here, we established that he's safe already. Yes, then why does he say we in verse 3? This was a mode of communication. Hallelujah! For example, now let me give you an example, assuming. I've paid my school fees. I've done my residence permit. I'm free from police problem. And I say, please, let's try to do our residence permit. Right? Let us ensure that we do what we do our residence permit. Have I done my own? Do you understand what I'm saying? Am I included in the we? But am I saying we should do it? So, is that a mode of communication? Is it clear? So is the we here meaning that the writer of Hebrews is not born again? So is he now? Is, do you understand there's a mood of communication? Tamam. on. Now let's move to the next one. Mood of communication. We Hebrews 3. We're going to move this understanding to explain 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Are we together? Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 to 14. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, verse 12 to 14. Hebrews 12, verse 3, rather. three Hebrews 3, verse 12 to 14. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Verse, the next verse. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the, to the end. Jump to chapter 4, verse 1 to 3. For we have become partakers of Christ. If you hold, yes. Chapter 3. I was thinking you've moved in. Chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Good. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear less of you seem to have come short of it. Verse 2. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Verse 3. For we who have believed do what? Do enter the rest. So is he that believes has entered rest. Eh? So here the writer of Hebrews says that we who believe we've entered the rest. Right? As he said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Jump to verse 11. Chapter 4 verse 11. Let us. Now you see where us here is brought into perspective. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. But he said previously in the beginning of the chapter that we've entered rest. So if you read this passage, are you going to say that uh, the writer have not entered rest? He says, let us therefore be diligent to enter rest. Lest anyone fall according to the same example of obedience. So question here. This verse 11. Is he referring to that the believer have not entered rest? So, could it be that the Hebrew writer is speaking to a mixed audience? That a possibility that there are people there that are opposing the gospel that have not entered rest? Do we understand? Now, let's carry this evidence and move to 1 John. Oh, I think we should look at another one. Let's look at another one, Pastor Ima. Okay, let's look at Hebrews chapter 10. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 10. This must enter. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 to 27. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. 27 but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. So if you read this one, it seems as though he's speaking to the believer. Are we together? Now read verse 14 of that same chapter, 20, chapter 10, verse 14. Go back to chapter, verse 14. Hebrews 10, verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Apostle said we should eliminate that being. Right? And I agree with him. Those who are sanctified. So how can you say in verse 14 that we've been sanctified forever? And then in verse 26 27, he said that we should be careful. We should what? Eh? It therefore will mean that he's speaking to a mixed congregation. And there's a possibility that there are people that are not born again who are rejecting the gospel. So, therefore, when he says we, he's trying to communicate with everybody. Do you understand? So, we here is not referring to the believer because in verse 14, he says the believer is perfected already. The believer is not an adversary. Therefore, the we, there will be referring to unbelievers. So, who then are in the category of the we in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9? Huh? Unbelievers. When we read verses 6, 7, and 8, we have the following information. They were a category of people that were still in darkness. Isn't it? They were still in sin. Isn't it? They have no fellowship with the Father and the Son. And fellow believers. Because they have not come to believe and agree. That Jesus is a solution for their sin. Are we together? Alright. So hence. He explained to them in verse 7. Why a man has fellowship with the father. Give me First John 1 verse 7. Why a man has. First John 1 7. Why a man has fellowship with the father. The son and other believers. Even why a man is cleansed from his sins. And this is by what? By the blood of Jesus. He says, but if we walk in light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. So what cleanses from all sin is the blood of Jesus. In verse 9, John now told them how this can be done. John explained how a man has fellowship with, his, with the father, the son, and other believers, and also how a man is cleansed from his sins. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now I want you to recall that John was quoting an Old Testament scripture. We said it last time. And the scripture he was cutting was Psalms 32, verse 5. With a New Testament understanding. Because he can't be referring to himself as one who has not been forgiven. Now, having considered the audience John spoke to in 1 John 1, verse 1, there's a need to embark on a further study to properly understand, right? 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Are we together? We will need to isolate verse 9. Let's 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 release, let's let's assume that verse 9 does not exist in the entire book of 1 John. In order to also examine what John has been speaking in his epistles concerning the forgiveness of sins. Concerning not forgiveness concerning confession of sin, we will then see if it agrees with the epistles on the same subject matter. If let's assume that verse nine does not exist in our Bible, let's look at what Paul, what John rather have spoken concerning confession of sins in all his epistles, and let's see if it agrees with what other epistles have been writing concerning the same subject matter, confession of sins. Then based on this, we can safely reconstruct the text. Or we can come back to that verse and now explain it rightfully. Hallelujah. So, let's now narrow down to John's teaching on sin. Let's note, and I say this again, that one of the points raised in interpretation of any text is that a particular text must not contradict the thought the author already established in other writings do you understand that statement that is what the author is writing in this in this verse should not contradict what is writing in another verse and that would be there will be problem there that means that your your interpretation has problem or the established truth in all other scriptures because to properly interpret any text we must collaborate scriptures no part of scripture is of private interpretation or of an absurd meaning, no contradicting opinion. So, if the Bible says, for God's all of the world, and he gave his only begotten son as the sacrifice for sin, right, in First John, we can't go to Matthew, and Matthew will say that he gave Judas Iscariot for the forgiveness of our sins. Are we together? Anyway, then we simply means that the Bible has contradiction. So whenever you're reading the scriptures and it seems as though there's a contradiction, there's a problem in your interpretation. Not that there's a contradiction in the Bible. Which means that there's more work needed for you to come to the knowledge of what the Bible is saying, Particularly in that part of scriptures. So let's go to First John now. Let's navigate through the entirety of First John. And see what John speaks apart from verse 9 of chapter 1 verse 9. Apart from chapter 1 verse 9. Let's see what John has consistently been saying concerning confession of sins. Right? So, let's read verse 9. Then we will now go into other verses and see whether they are aligned together. Chapter 1 verse 9. Again, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Chapter 1 verse 7. Let's go back to chapter 1 verse 7. What does he say in chapter 1 verse 7? But if we walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of... So what cleanses us from our sins? And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all our sins. So did this say confession of sins? Yeah, brings us to the cleansing of our sins. The blood of Jesus, isn't it? Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have what? We have confession to make. And the Father will forgive us our sins. Is that what he says? We have what? An advocate. So chapter 1 verse 7. What is the solution for sin? Christ. The blood of Christ. Chapter 2 verse 1. What is the solution for sin? An advocate. Christ. We have an advocate. With the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Are we together? So the solution for sin here is Christ. And it's the same book by the same writer. Chapter 3, verse 5. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him is no sin. So who take it away sins? Eh? What is the solution for sin? This part of this text. Christ. And Christ here is referring to all that Christ has done for sin. Are we together? He's referring to all that Christ has come in the flesh and have done for sin. The sacrifice he has done for sin. Hallelujah. And he know that he was manifested to take away our sins. So what takes away our sins is not confession of sins that takes away our sins. I said this last week. That you can go to court and swear that I agree that I have done the thing that you said I have done. Does that take away the punishment of the crime? You still go to jail, so the issue has not been resolved. Are we together? The crime must be remitted for. So admitting confession in the sense of confession in English dictionary, which means to admit that I am wrong. You have caught me. I am wrong. Does not in any way mean that the issue of sin has been dealt with the soulless sinner must die. There must be death as a result of sin. So Jesus becomes a solution for sin because he died. So if you confess, it doesn't mean that you are forgiven. Hallelujah. So is confession necessary then? Since it's useless in dealing with sin. Hallelujah. 1 John 4, verse 10. 1 John 4, verse 10. In this love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the word Propitiation for our sins. What is a propitiation for our sins? Confession? I want you to know that all we are talking about is in the same book. We didn't bring another epistle. We are, we are just delving in this. If we begin to sample other epistles, we discover that they never reference confession of sin as a solution for sin. They always make reference to Christ and what he has done. Hallelujah. So even John here, <laughs> remain in the same narrative. Jesus Christ, the solution for sins. Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for sins. So why would 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 say, we confess and you will forgive us our sins? That means that he's an outlier. That means that we need to understand what the interpretation of that passage. Hallelujah. Now remember I said last time that Jesus Christ was made what? Eh? He was made what? Sin. For who? For us. Jesus Christ was not a sinner. That would have been better. Hmm? At least he's just a sinner. But he became sin. That means he graduated from being a sinner. He bypassed being a sinner to become sin himself. So in redemption, Jesus is what? Is sin. That was why he needed to die. Are we together? So if we confess our word. All right. Let me leave that one we'll come back to it. When John talked about sin, his emphasis was on the blood of Jesus and the propitiation for our sins. John never mentioned confession as the cure for sin. Rather, he taught the blood of Jesus as the cure to sin. Paul also reaffirmed this vital truth in his epistles. Now, we've left John now with all what was in 1 John alone. Now let's look at what Paul said also concerning the forgiveness of sins. Romans of the 3 verse 25. Romans of the 3 verse 25. Romans of the 3 verse 25. Whom God set forth as a what? A propitiation by his blood. By his what? Whenever we see propitiation, you know that it's a transaction for sin, right? And next thing you will see is Jesus Christ. His blood. Through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because his forbearance, in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. So we can see clearly that it's secure for sin. Even Paul, another epistle, uh, another apostle, is referencing Jesus and not what man can do for what for obtaining forgiveness of sins. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. Let's look at another where Paul was, was talking to the Ephesians. In him. In who? Who is the him here? In Christ. We have what? Redemption. Through what? Through his blood. The forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. Let's look at what he is said to the Colossians chapter 1 verse 14. Colossians 1, verse 14. Colossians 1, verse 14. In whom we have redemption through what? Through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. So if it's the same gospel they had and the same gospel we have, why will our own gospel say we should confess so that Christ will forgive us? Why will John say that they should confess their sins if it's the literal meaning of it before they obtain forgiveness. We can therefore conclude that John's teaching on sin aligns with other epistles teaching. Right? Do we agree? Do you have evidence that what John was teaching concerning the forgiveness of sin apart from verse 9? Remember, we're eliminating verse 9, right? We're eliminating, let's we're assuming verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9 does not exist in 1 John. Can we now see with evidence that what John was saying concerning sin aligns with what other epistles are saying concerning sin? Right? So, what then can we see in First John chapter 1 verse 9? We have seen previously that the word confession is translated from original Greek homologio Right? Homologio. H-O-M-O-L-O-G-E-O. I spelled it last week. H-O-M-O-L-O-G-E-O. Which implies to say the same thing in agreement. It implies to say the same thing in agreement. It is the work of faith. Confession means you are agreeing. By faith. Therefore, it is to agree in your heart and in, with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and He rose from the dead, having come in the flesh. That is our confession. What is our confession? Our confession is what? Is Christ. And when we say our confession is Christ, what are we confessing? We are confessing all that he has done for the forgiveness of our sins. We are agreeing with him in our heart and with our mouths. That all that Christ has done is for us. And we we agree with it. We are in agreement with what Christ has done. So John's usage of forgiveness of sins and confession should therefore be brought into the context of 1 John 1 verse 9. We cannot neglect what John has said in all other scriptures and decide to interpret 1 verse 9 separately from other parts of scriptures. We must be consistent in our interpretation of the Bible. Sins are cleansed and forgiven by the sacrifice of who? Of Jesus. And on this basis, we do not confess sins. But what do we confess? We confess Jesus. Hallelujah. Example now. We see 1 John chapter 4 verse 1 to 3. Give me First John chapter one, chapter four, verse one to three. Going back to John, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit whether they are of God, because many false prophets have come out in the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that word, so confession is what is about Jesus Christ, right? Every spirit that does not confess his sins is what? Is the Antichrist? Huh? Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of Every spirit that confesses rather, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist which you had was coming. And is now already in the world. And I pray that he's not in this church. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. First John chapter 4 verse 15. You see him making confession. He will point to Jesus. Confession. Whoever confesses that word. So you see the word confession. What do you see next? Jesus. The same First John. Not another book whoever confesses that what Jesus is the son of God God abides in him and he in what in God 2nd John chapter 1 verse 7 2nd John chapter 1 verse 7 For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess what Their sins who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. So you see, the uses of confession is always positive in the New Testament. It's always positive. And that positive is always referring to our faith in Christ. It's always referring to what Jesus has done. It's always pointing to the works of salvation. And it's never pointing to sins, always to Jesus and what he has done. For many deceivers have gone out in the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Hence, in the light of the above, when John talked about confession, his emphasis was on who? On Jesus, to confess Jesus. And when he talked about sins, his emphasis was on what? On the blood of Jesus. Confession, Jesus, sins, the blood of Jesus. Are we together? That is consistency. That is consistency. Hallelujah. I'll stop here. We've not interpreted First John 1 verse 9. Hallelujah. We've not interpreted that verse yet. Amen. So can we do- Thank you for listening to our sermon today. We hope you were blessed by this teaching. If you want to learn more about our church, please visit our website or follow us on social media. We would love to connect with you and hear your feedback. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast channel and share it with your friends and family. You never know who might need a word of encouragement.